Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to an election post, post, post election day advisory opinions podcast. Is that correct? In the military, you have D-Day and then you have like D plus one, D plus two, D plus three. I think this is D plus two. D plus. Okay. I've lost track of all sense of time and place due to the pandemic, 2020 in general, now this election, and a baby (laughs) who won't sleep. So welcome to a D plus two edition of the Advisory Opinions podcast. The race is still undecided. There was a big oral argument in the Supreme Court yesterday. Wait a minute. I'm just going to go ahead and preview. There was a small oral argument in the Supreme Court yesterday that I thought could have been a big oral argument, but we'll explain that later. But we're going to open by talking about, yep, you guessed it, the election. So I just want to start, you know, under the the motto of this podcast, Sarah, is give the people what they want. And the people want to hear from former, former presidential campaign managers' thoughts on what is happening in this moment. So I just want to know, top of mind, in an atmosphere of absolute free speech, away from the constraints of the dispatch pod, the artificial, uh-huh. the chains uh-huh. of the dispatch pod, now in the free environment of advisory opinions. Sarah Isger, what are you thinking? You want my sleep-deprived, cranky pants thoughts? As long as it doesn't give us an explicit rating. Oh, okay. Then let me change one word. Oh. <laughs> Get the F off Twitter, everyone. There you go. O-M-F-G. <laughs> there. Uh, I good? Look, here's the deal with this pod today, guys. If you simply believe in voter fraud like it's a religion and there's nothing I can do to convince you that there is no possibility of the type of widespread fraud that could change the outcome of a state that is in the 20,000 plus range, don't listen to the rest of this podcast. You're not going to like it because I'm going to be talking about, you know, how things work in reality. That's not what religions are about. And I would never challenge the beliefs in someone's religion. So, If voter fraud is a religion for you, go find yourself another pod today. This pod will will be mocking your religion. Okay, so Sarah, before we get into the actual reasons for mocking the religion, who is the god of voter fraud? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Like Newt Gingrich today (laughs) appears to be one of the Buddhas. So if you're lighting a candle to an icon or an image of the god of voter fraud, it's today it's Newt. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I have seen some pretty uh, voices who should know better spreading some really wildly unsubstantiated false crap garbage. So you're correct. This is not 
This is not, if you've got the candle burning right now to the over under the poster of Newt, just hit pause on the iPhone, come back for the next podcast when we'll spend more time on baby Yoda. Yeah. So here's some important things to caveat. One, of course, it's not that I'm saying that there have never been cases of fraud. Quite the opposite, actually. There's lots of cases of fraud. Uh, For instance, that North Carolina congressional race that got overturned, they redid the whole race in 2019 over uh, illegal mail ballot harvesting. Um, Plenty of individual examples of fraud of people who shouldn't have been allowed to vote or voted under the wrong name, et cetera. There's people who have admitted to um, uh, harvesting ballots and tossing them. There's people who have admitted to pressuring voters into how they vote. All of that's true, no question. But that's not what people seem to think is happening. They seem to think that 20,000 ballots were like brought in a mail truck to downtown somewhere. I don't know, because if you know how elections work, none of these theories make sense. So first of all, David, let's back up for a second. What's happening right now in these states is that we are still counting the ballots. So for instance, in Ohio, for those who were with us on election night, Ohio looked really bad for Trump and everyone was like, what? How is this possible? And then over the course of the night, Trump won the state by seven. Now, why did it happen in that order? Because they had counted their early votes first that were heavily Democrat, and then they counted their election day votes. They swung wildly for Trump, and then we got the result in the end. That happened with North Carolina, Florida, Arizona. Why, you ask? Because all of them counted their absentee ballots before election day. What's the difference with Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin? I don't know why no one seems to be listening to me because I've been screaming about this since August. They don't count their absentee ballots in advance. They're just counting them now. It's infuriating, but please take it up with the state legislatures there. Mostly Republican state legislatures, by the way, who blocked them counting these ballots in advance so that they could make this exact argument. It is infuriating to no end that this is being rewarded. Okay. So So can I just interrupt one for one quick second? Yes. This is why, as a general matter, you you speak with regret and not outrage, so that when you really are outraged, <laughs> I am so outraged. Everybody today. <laughs> knows it. Everybody knows it. I'm outraged. So continue. So, okay, so that's the reason why um, this is happening the way that it is, and why the states that were for Trump are now shifting so heavily toward the Democrats and why I've seen some people say like, well, all the states that are still counting suddenly moving towards the Democrats. No, that that was baked into the formula here. Now, the other thing I've seen people say is this is really different than in previous elections. This isn't what used to happen. Ah, that is correct. Why? Because Donald Trump told his voters not to vote by mail. In past elections, they divided by about 2% partisan-wise. Uh, in any given state on the difference of who voted by mail and who didn't. Not this time. Donald Trump told his voters to go on election day. So for the first time, what we have is a huge partisan divide on the absentee ballots. So they are not unexpectedly going six to one, sometimes higher for Biden than for Trump. Again, similar to the states, the Republican state legislatures that chose not to allow absentee ballots to be open and counted before election day and are now complaining that it's taking too long and they're counting these votes that are all going for Biden. And then for the president 
who said, please don't vote by mail, to then be stunned when all the people voting by mail didn't vote for him. All of his voters came and voted in person because that's what he told them to do. (sighs) Okay, so that's like the foundational issue we're walking into here, why it's a little different than previous elections and some of the ways in which it's not any different than previous elections. Okay, that's the foundation, David. Are you ready for how counts happen? Yeah, before I get that, so what you're saying is, and not to quote Emperor Palpatine uh, from the Star Wars saga, all is unfolding as we have foreseen. (laughs) You know, the one thing that's not unfolding as I thought is that for some reason, the number of mail-in ballots being rejected is significantly lower than it, I would think, should be. We'll get back to that. That is odd. I'll be interested to see whether the percentage that had been rejected in previous elections is within the margin that it would make any difference in these states. Right. If so, it could make for an interesting podcast of why uh, the rejection rate went lower the first time that we know the partisan outcome of the ballots. Um, But generally speaking, right now, it does not look like that margin would be big enough. Yeah. I mean, before we get to you, before we move on, I I just want to say everybody was talking about this beforehand, that there were red states that had allowed that allowed for earlier counting of mail in ballots. And what they said is there was going to be a blue mirage early in those states, followed by a red shift. That's exactly what happened in Ohio. To some extent, it's what happened in Florida, to some extent. But, and then in the states that did not permit counting, you were going to have the red mirage followed by the blue shift. All of this stuff was talked about. And we, you know what we also talked about? We also talked about that everyone's going to freak out about it in real time when it happens. So but it's so much worse than I thought it would be, David. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you <laughs> the have totally this. Totally invalid, the you should know better takes. Uh, the president saying stop the count when he's, if we stop the count nationwide right now, he would lose. Uh, what? Why, why do you want to stop the count? You're then, down. Then you have an actual Fox anchor tweeting this. 4 a.m. dump, Wisconsin, 65,000 votes, 100% for Biden. 4 a.m. dump, Michigan, 138,499 votes, 100% Biden. Arizona poll workers forcing voters to use Sharpies and invalidating ballots. Trump leading in Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, a stop counting before the vote ferry visits overnight. Oh, and by the way, when they're not counting overnight, then they're upset that they're like lazy and not counting the votes. That's the other funny part. But I mean, truly, nope. It it is a religion. If no matter which way something happens, it confirms your priors. That's my new definition of religion. By the way, yeah, it's it's it, it really is remarkable. And people that I followed for years that I have for years, they're just using terms like irregularities when they're not, you know, spreading actual misinformation. There's terms like irregularities. What do you mean by irregularities? Well, it is in fact irregular that a president tells his followers not to vote using a certain method. That's irregular. And that distorts the system. It does. It is uh, imprudent when a legislature says, don't count ballots before election day. That's imprudent, and it results in an irregular process, but not a nefariously irregular process. 
but a process. Let me give another example of an unnecessary screw up that we're all now paying the price for. And that's Nevada. Nevada decided that it would be wise in a pandemic to send every <laughs> voter in the state a ballot. Okay. I have no particular problem with that. Although plenty of people at the time said, Hey, um, we hear you, but it's not a great idea to change your whole system of voting right before an election because the states that do mail voting, for instance, have been practicing this. They put in a lot of infrastructure and time to get this right. And you're just sort of one-offing it. It's like trying to do one of those great gymnastics routines from the Olympics. Actually, let me switch to diving. One of those amazing backflip quadruple whatever pikes, except you've never practiced it before. And what's going to happen is that you're going to hit the water at a high rate of speed in an uncomfortable position. So Nevada did it anyway. So they sent mail ballots to every voter. And then you could choose. You could use that mail ballot or you could show up in person. Here's the problem. Hilarious. Nevada didn't have a way to cross-reference who had already voted by mail and who had shown up in person. You have a funny so, version of, you have a funny definition of hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. So now, before they release the results, they're having to go through and cross-reference all of this. So it's taking a lot of time. <sighs> yeah. Cool plan, guys. Cool yeah. Plan. Okay, so your next, that was, that was, uh, venting session one, shall we move That's just on? the foundational side of this. Yeah, we haven't even gotten <laughs> to like election day operations. So uh, I, again, once again, see a lot of election day operations uh, experts on Twitter. I'm sure that they have worked as many cycles as I have and are well aware of what is normal and what is not normal. So let's just go through it for them. Um, there's the count. That's what we're doing right now. Absentee ballots that were received on or before election day, you just got to count those. And if the legislature says you can't open them until 7 a.m. on election day and there's 2 million of them, it's going to take a while to open them all and put them through the machines. It just it takes a long time. So that's the count. Um, there's the canvas. Now, this is where you just do the math again. What happens a lot of the time and spoiler alert, David, we just saw this happen in Michigan. Um, they will report 81 ballots for Biden and uh, 71 ballots for Trump. And it will turn out that they flipped it, that it was 71 for Biden and 81 for Trump. That's one version. Or they will transpose them, that it's 18 for Biden and 71 for Trump. So they switch the eight and the one. Those are the two biggest types of errors. I know those sound dumb, but people are tired they're doing the best they can to go as quickly as they can. And these uh, errors, whatever you want to call them, typographical, anything else, they happen all the time. And so every time there's a count, there's then a canvas. That's not automatic, you know, like requested, whatever. You have to do a canvas. They just recheck all the math. They always find errors. Now, because you turn in these numbers and these counts in batches, the errors will shift the vote count by a few thousand usually, but it won't shift the vote count by 20,000. So, sorry. Then, and only then, do we get to the possibility of a recount. So, recounts are where we actually haggle over which ballots should be counted. So, for instance, when the Supreme Court refused to hear that Pennsylvania case about whether ballots received, absentee ballots received after election day, but postmarked before election day or having no postmark, they declined to hear that. But they said, keep those ballots segregated. 
Now in a recount is where we'll haggle over those ballots if those ballots could determine the margin of the race, of course. If that's the only thing we're talking about and it wouldn't matter if every single one of those ballots went for Trump, then we're not going to deal with those ballots at all. Uh, Okay, let's run through some states and their recount rules. Arizona, a tenth of a point margin, automatic recount. Uh, They also don't have requested recounts by the candidates, but a voter can challenge the results if they have evidence of fraud or some uh, problem with the results, and a candidate can intervene in that case. Georgia, less than 1% a candidate can request a recount. Pennsylvania, half a point, automatic recount. Michigan, 2,000 votes or less is an automatic recount. (laughs) That feels incredibly narrow. (laughs) Um, or a candidate can request it if uh, a recount would give them a, quote, reasonable chance of winning the election. Michigan, thanks for making that the messiest uh, recount statute I've seen. Good job. (laughs) Wisconsin, less than a percentage, a candidate can request the recount. So, um, you know, less than one point is actually pretty narrow, And I'm not sure when all is said and done how many of these states are going to be within a point where a candidate can request a recount. Well, in the case, so in Wisconsin, the winner has been declared and an estimated 100% of votes have been counted. Uh, So that's not, means not 100%. It means they haven't done the canvas, by the way. So that the gap there is 20,534 votes. That's the gap, and which is 0.6%. Okay, so then Trump can request a recount. Michigan is much more grim for him. Uh, The the margin there is 50.6% to 47.8%, an estimated 100% of votes have been counted. And so that margin is about 149,000 votes. Not reasonable chance of overturning that. Right. Nevada, you know, Nevada has been a subject of intense speculation. It is right now, it is at about a 12,000 or a little, about 11,500 vote de- gap, which is 0.9% in favor of Joe Biden. Uh, Arizona is 2.4% for Joe Biden with a 69 or 68,500 or so um, vote difference. So that's where we are now. And that's without getting to Pennsylvania, which Trump still leads as of this moment by about 114,000 votes. Georgia, his lead is now down to less than 13 or less than 14,000 votes. Georgia seems to be headed, Sarah, to just an absolute eyelash difference between the two. Yeah, the good news on that is um, there's a pretty good chance Georgia won't matter. Right, right. If if Pennsylvania, um, you know, we keep waiting for the final count in Pennsylvania. If that flips, then the whole thing's over. If Nevada and Arizona uh, stay blue, then the whole thing's over. Um, but yeah, it's we're getting close. We just have to be patient. And you know what helps patience, Sarah? Not being on Twitter. <laughs> so this is the problem. There's a, just a lot of rampant speculation and. Uh, and things that turn out later to just have not been based in fact at all, right. or there's a really good explanation. I just saw two reporters, one tweeting that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had um, ruled that the Allegheny County could remove Trump observers. And then another reporter say, no, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has no pending cases and has not done so. I mean, 
if the reporters can't get what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has done right, just be very careful believing anything you're seeing right now. Um, you know, that thing about the 138,000 ballots in Michigan turned out to be one of the typographical errors that I mentioned. They added a zero where they shouldn't have. All things that it's, you know, then people on Twitter were like, well, but they they would have gotten away with it if we hadn't made a thing of it on Twitter. Like, no, actually, the, the canvas would have caught that uh, most likely. So it also won't make a difference, it turns out. Um, just... Deep breath, everyone. Deep <laughs> breath. And what's frustrating, I think, is I do understand why people um, think this looks shady. And that's why it's all the more infuriating that we could have had all of these counted ahead of time if the Republican-controlled state legislature in Pennsylvania, for instance, had simply agreed to start counting the ballots three weeks earlier, which is what the governor requested. But they got into a sort of uh, a political tiff and they just never they reached an impasse. And so nothing happened. And then the whole country is sitting here maybe questioning the results of a presidential election. And that makes me really angry because it was people putting their own petty political niche issues ahead of the interests of the country. It, it is. Uh, and Sarah, I don't think that can be an, emphasized enough because if you had had responsible decision making before this election, the whole narrative is quite a bit different. The narrative then becomes wow, look how we handled things in a pandemic. Like we had the institutional capacity to do it. And in fact, we'd probably, probably, not certainly, probably have a much better sense of how this thing was going to actually come out. And we have, would have had that sense as early as like midnight on election night. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, think of all the other states. We had Ohio, we had Florida. We had a really good sense of North Carolina. Um, you know, and. And that's where things are, unfortunately. And Georgia so is I, slow, but Georgia is going to be super, 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 super close. That's kind of understandable, although I do think right. they've been a little bit too slow. But the agreed. But yeah, I mean, this is this was completely, and people should remember this. This was all uh, this rage, this meltdown. There was just this tweet in all cap caps from Mark Levin that you know Trump family members are promoting that. Reminder to Republican state legislatures, you have the final say over the choosing the electors, not any board of elections, secretary of state, governor, or even court. You have the final say, Article 2 of the federal constitution. So get ready to do your constitutional duty. This is an artifact. This, this kind of rage tweeting is an artifact of these political choices made before this election. And it's, you know, look, thankfully, as you have pointed out and you have tweeted, um, <laughs> Ironically, you've tweeted the irrelevance of Twitter. <laughs> I have. I um, have. Thankfully, as you have pointed out repeatedly, um, there are not a whole lot of people on tw Twitter relative to the voting public. But the sadly, unfortunately, a lot of people who have very large audiences are taking their cues from it, uh, are amplifying what they see on Twitter. And that's making this moment far more contentious. Uh, uh, skyrocketing distrust in already distrusted institutions. Also, David, what if after 2016, when Donald Trump won Michigan by 11,000 votes, if Hillary Clinton had just told the Democratic-controlled Michigan legislature, you know, I see that. You're telling me there's not some chance that those 11,000 votes were funny business? Um, Russia-related? 
you know, Russia was rooting for him. There was misinformation on Facebook. You should just pick my electors instead. Oh, I know. Can I you mean, imagine the meltdown? It would have been oh from my. us, by the yeah. way. Like justifiably. Justifiably. Yeah. And and to be clear, these meltdowns are occurring with margins that are either matching the margins, for example, in Wisconsin, um, that was that were the Trump margins in 2016 that everyone was saying, well, now we need to really this has shown how to reach the Midwest and it flips around and people aren't saying, well, Joe Biden has shown how to reach the Midwest. They're saying (laughs) they're going fraud, fraud. And Michigan is a big, like Michigan isn't close y'all. That is, I mean, it's close in the sense of, you know, 2.8% is, you know, if you're going to look at it, you would say, man, you know, maybe next time we can make it up. It's not close in the sense of we were robbed close. Um, and I don't know where Pennsylvania is going to end up. And, and I just, I'm not even going to repeat all of the various tweets that I've seen speculating about it. I don't know. I don't know. I'll just <laughs> Well, watch. and don't forget now it appears that, uh, Republicans will not have certain control of the Senate. The Georgia Senate race, uh, that was not a special election. So the special election of course was always going to be in January, but the regular Senate election between David Perdue and John Ossoff, uh, looks like David Perdue has fallen below 50%. So that will now go to a runoff. Um, and that's uh, really bad news for David Perdue. Um, but it also means all of that Republican celebration heading into really Thursday or uh, Wednesday was a little premature. You know, Tillis hasn't been called yet. Uh, Perdue has to get above 50% in Georgia. And that would very much uh, be the ball game if they won the White House and both of those Georgia seats in the runoff. Yeah, you know what? I was just, I was watching that same thing because at, at, at this very moment with, again, you know, uh, the best, est- well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not going to repeat the back and forth I've just seen over Twitter between whether there's 30,000 votes left in Georgia or 50,000 or 60,000. Because... <laughs> I don't know how to adjudicate that, um, but there are some votes left. And right now, um, Donald Trump is at 2,436,027, and Joe Biden's at 2,422,493, and David Perdue is at 2,436,975. Now, that's fascinating. <laughs> As of this moment, David Perdue has gotten exactly 900 and. Uh, 58 more votes, 48, 948 more votes than Donald Trump in uh, Georgia. That's a fascinating tiny tidbit. But anyway, he's at (laughs) 50.0% and Ossoff is at 47.7. So Sarah, we're going to go through electoral Armageddon. If this, you know, if Ossoff, if if, um, Purdue doesn't get above that 50%, it's going to be all... Can you imagine how much money is going to be spent in the Georgia runoffs? Hope Georgians like television ads about politics. (laughs) Somebody just should buy all the network time and just just do. (laughs) And save them. Like have some, like uh, just some nice like uh, Muzak playing in the background. Oh, here's here's how whoever does this wins. Okay, are you ready for my idea, Sarah? This mm-hmm. is, I, I don't know why I'm not a political consultant. Hard to imagine some days. I, I just, wait, <laughs> I, I'm just going to choose to take that as a compliment. 
Um, so here, here's my, tell me, tell me I'm wrong. All right. Probably what? $200 million will pour into the coffers. So if I'm say John Ossoff or David Perdue, I say, okay, I'm going to take all $200 million. I'm going to buy all of the commercial time between now and the runoff. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I, David Perdue, have, I'm asking for your vote. And I'm also not going to run a, there will not be another political ad. And I made this happen. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good, yeah. good plan. <laughs> um, Darn hey, it. can we go through some of the mailbox things that yes. uh, listeners have sent and try yes, to let's do it. knock and these out? Before, after we do that, remind me, I need to trigger you on exit polls. Oh, yeah, that will trigger me. Yeah. Okay, here's one. Is it crazy to think that Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia are slow walking their counts on purpose because none of them want to be the state that puts Biden over the top and then have to bear the full force of MAGA and Trump legal team? Hmm. Uh, yes, that is crazy. That is totally crazy. So um, <laughs> the reason that I read this question is actually because I think there is this belief that there's sort of these like Wizard of Oz, Grand Poobahs behind a curtain doing these votes when in fact it's more like an ant colony, like leaf cutter ants, like everyone's bringing leaves into the colony. And so um, that conspiracy would have to be shared across thousands of precinct uh, captains who are calling in their votes and counting these ballots. Um, and then of course, across three different states. So uh, yep, that one's crazy. That's easy to dispose of. Next. <laughs> uh, next. I'm reasonably jaded about human moral frailty, but I just can't see how Democrats could produce that magnitude of forged ballots before they could even know which voters had or had not cast legitimate mail-in ballots. And without leaving evidence that would be found in a recount, bringing in so many conspirators that someone would spill the beans. But do my Trump was robbed friends have a point is there any chance this was stolen? Was there anything actually suspicious about how the vote count played out? What exactly does the vote counting process look like anyway? Um, yeah, I mean, we've addressed most of this, but he raises some really good points about how, how would you forge tens of thousands of ballots and, and then place them in around all the precincts so that not a single precinct, of course, could just have 20,000 extra ballots because... If the, um, you know, turnout doesn't match what it should, uh, that would raise suspicions, obviously. And then the number of people you'd have to have in on the conspiracy would be really large. This is sort of why I don't believe there are aliens out there. I just think too many people would have to know about it. Sorry, why I don't think the government knows there are aliens out there. There very well may be aliens out there, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, the conspiracy would have to be far too big. And I, I continue this challenge to folks. I understand um, voter fraud. I, I understand it pretty well. I've done three presidential cycles, uh, two of which my only job was on election day operations. I have yet to have someone come to me with a voter fraud theory, not something in practice, not something anyone's been convicted of, a theory for how you would boost uh 20 to 30,000 ballots, let's say. So I continue that challenge of someone to tell me how to do that. Yeah, I, you know, just pause on this for a minute because I know this doesn't work to debunk a conspiracy theory 
to somebody who's already in the tank for the theory. Because if somebody's already in the tank, even the act of arguing against it is sort of proof that you're in on it. So, but if somebody's like dipping their toe in that extremely tepid conspiracy theory bathwater, um, one of the good ways to deal with it is to try to war game out how it could happen. Like, how, how do you do this? How do you actually have, who is uh, Marita Bar- Bardaroma? Who is the vote fairy? Um, and how did the vote fairy do their nefarious deed so that the election observers and the poll watchers and the analysts and the all just couldn't, didn't notice it, uh, didn't see it, but only you saw it. You well, saw and this it on gets to the, uh, I tweeted last night. <laughs> and I, you know what? My tweet wasn't very clear. As I said, I'm very tired. Um, so I'm going to be more clear on the pod. Uh, a Wall Street Journal opinion writer uh, named Kimberly Strassel tweeted that the turnout in Wisconsin had been 89%, which was not feasible. That was way, way too high because election turnout in the United States has generally been between 60 and 65%. So all of a sudden, Wisconsin's at 89%. That is... Um, you know, if not proof, certainly some smoke of fraud. And I tweeted, I am bewildered by this. (laughs) Now, I didn't mean I was bewildered by the 89% turnout. I'm bewildered by her bewilderment at the 89% turnout, because what she is referring to is the turnout of registered voters. And in 2016, the turnout of registered voters, where Donald Trump won, was 88%. There were 138 million votes. There were 157 million registered voters in the country. Uh, like, wh- what? Now, that 60 to 65% is the number of votes compared to the number of eligible voters. That's people who could register to vote if they chose to. They're over the age of 18. They're U.S. citizens, yada, yada, yada. They meet all of their state's requirements. Um, only about 60 to 65% of eligible voters in the United States choose to vote. But nearly 90% of registered voters vote. So yeah, that like people are just tweeting these things and it's Googleable, David. I yeah. don't understand why, why someone with like that many millions of followers would tweet something that like a Google search could check. And maybe more upsetting is why nobody who retweeted her did the Google search to check. It just like made it around the internet and everyone was like, yeah, 89%, that's crazy. And no one went back and looked at 2016? Yeah. <sighs> I had I had very smart people um, that I really like asking me about that Twitter thread. And, you know, it, it, this, is, this is another thing where you're sort of trying to find fraud by looking at data that you don't fully understand. Um, for example, there was an article in The Federalist that contained was noting the gap between Republican support for House members and Republican support for Trump, and that there were Republicans who had apparently voted for House members, but that did not vote for Trump. And the gap was larger than people realized. And and this was in part of a long sort of look at all these weird things happening. It would be mystifying. If Republicans won more seats in the House, retained the Senate, and picked up state legislative seats, all while the same voters voted against Trump. Mystifying, Sarah. It's almost as if millions of gallons of ink haven't been 
build around the concept of a Trump, a Republican supporter, a Republican who doesn't support Trump. And I know it's it's amazing. I mean, it has. Well, their- and here comes the problem with Twitter. Right. So the original guy who tweeted this, um, you know, he's a blue check mark. He's on he lists himself as being on Fox News, CNN, BBC, et cetera. Uh, and as an advisory board member to the president's campaign. So he tweeted this 89% turnout. Okay, sure. So I responded, uh, voter turnout registered voters in 2016 was 88%, 138 million votes, 157 million registered voters. His tweet got 11,000 retweets and 30,000 likes. My response debunking this got 84 likes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just how Twitter works. It's not, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't expect it to get that many likes. My response, but the point is, like people, um, salacious things on Twitter move very, very quickly and get just accepted. And the like, well, actually, here's the data uh, with the census.gov link to it. Don't get as much attention. Oh and, yeah, it's, and right now that's a big, big problem. It's 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 always bad, but right now it is so bad. And the misinformation, and it's not just Twitter, it's it's social media, it's on television. The misinformation is so rampant because what's happening is we, what we have to do right now is we have to wait. We have to wait. There's going to be a hours and hours at a time when there's no new information. And nature abhors a vacuum. If nature abhors a vacuum, Twitter abhors it more than nature. Um. TV news abhors it more than nature, so it fills information, it replaces information with speculation. And it's gotten to the point where I'm literally believing nothing I read right now. There was there was a viral uh, tweet that, what was it, Allegheny County, that they're pausing vote until, completely pausing their vote until Friday, and nobody knows why. Pausing yes. their vote counting. <laughs> and, yeah, but for that federal judge's order, that would have made a lot of uh, people angry. Yeah. I mean, it, it's <laughs> they weren't allowed to count votes until Friday morning because of a judicial order. This was the county, of course, that um, due to their own negligence, one might argue, they sent out the wrong ballots to a bunch of people. And so then they had to send out the correct ballots. And because of that, the whole thing ends up in federal court to determine how best to deal with this screw up where some voters filled out the wrong ballot, sent it in and then needed to go fill out this new ballot, blah, blah, blah. What the judge decided was you couldn't start dealing with any of this until Friday. So they said today uh, what they were working on was how to basically match up which voters sent in two ballots and correctly sent in two ballots, by the way, because they were sent two ballots. They needed to perform that second one, even if they had already performed the first one. Um, So, yeah, they're not taking the day off. They're not taking naps. They're working to deal with how you do an automated count with tens of thousands of ballots like that. And the answer is you're going to have to like mess with the machines quite a bit. Um, again, like none of this is brand new. This happens in every election. The problem is that generally we know the outcome. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And so this for, this problem would matter a whole lot to a state rep race, and that doesn't make national news. Right, exactly. Okay, so now let's move on to something that I think is really important. Um, and it's related to the polling stuff that we've already talked about, for example, in the dispatch podcast and kind of talked a lot about it in the dispatch podcast. There's going to be 
a huge amount, after this is all over and we know who finally won the presidency, we know who controls the Senate, there is going to be a huge amount of curiosity about why did this happen and who voted for whom. And these are important questions to ask and important questions to answer because they matter a lot about, you know, where the country is going, uh, what people believe, what people want, um, matter a lot for, you know, what, what are sort of like uh, the, the, all of the identity politics implications from the actions of different voting blocks. And what I have heard you say, and you're very kind that uh, to, to actually just say this in Slack and not respond to my use of exit poll data in a tweet, <laughs> um, you have been adamant pay no attention to these exit polls that people talk about for years that break down the um, percentages of who voted for whom, what religious group voted for which person, um, that you're, you're, um, you say garbage data, or maybe <laughs> not, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. You say bad data. Oh, no, I, I called them garbage. It's okay, true. okay. So explain... If I want to know, Sarah, I'm coming in and I'm I'm the voice of the the uh I'm the voice of the pundit crying in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming to you and I say, Sarah, I have hot takes to give. <laughs> I have m- many takes to write. And I have uh-huh. and I have to write them for four years, Sarah, about this election. And I want to know who voted. How many evangelicals voted for Donald Trump? Sarah, I need to know that. I need to know how many African-American voters voted for Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Biden. I need to know if it was rich people or if it that went disproportionately for Trump or if there really is this revolution of the working class uh, for the GOP. I need to know, Sarah, the takes, the takes that I must provide and they must be sourced. What do you, what do you have to say to me? Don't use the exit polls. <laughs> okay. So... Two reasons, uh, two, two things you can do. One, the exit polls do eventually get weighted by pollsters based on turnout and all the data that comes in after elections of who voted. Uh, so they do get better over time. The exit polls that you're seeing now are absolute stinky garbage. Raccoons are turning away from these exit polls. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> I have very picky raccoons. I don't know about yours. Um, they can get better over time. I would still tell you not to use the exit polls. And here's why, David. One, uh, all polls have, not all, but, you know, uh, most polls have about a 3% statistical marginal uh, margin of error just based on how statistics work when you take a small group and extrapolate it to a large group. And then there's the survey bias margin of error. And that's what we just saw in all of the polls where we actually then got to compare them to a real outcome. So I don't understand why anyone is talking to me about any polls and then looking at the results in Ohio, Georgia. I mean, Michigan was eight. Wisconsin was eight. Um, And then you're saying, but the exit polls. Okay. Also, the uh, people who voted in person this year, 
obviously looked really different than previous years because of what we just said between mail ballots, early in person, and then election day in person. They skewed wildly compared to previous elections. That makes the exit polls this year especially stinky hot garbage. Um, But some of the folks are actually doing real polls, but calling them election or exit uh, polls. I would just, again, point to the massive error in the polling, except this time you won't have anything to be able to determine which ones are right. So that person who, um, you know, said that Michigan or sorry, Wisconsin was going to be plus 17 Biden is now giving you a quote unquote exit poll. It could be 17 points off plus or minus the 3% of the statistical error. Is that significant? 17 points off? It feels significant. Okay. Okay, So then your question is, fine, I can't use the exit polls. What can I use? Or are you saying I can eventually start to use them tentatively, eventually, after they're reweighted? I mean, they could inform what you're seeing in the data. Okay. That's, though, what I guess I want to say is that operatives aren't using exit polls as some sort of gospel and then heading off into that direction. They're looking at the actual county by county data. So, you know, you look at Miami-Dade County, that's a uh, majority Hispanic county that went um, much better for Trump than it had ever gone for a Republican. And Clearly, you can tell that he is doing well, not just with Cubans, because that couldn't make up the difference, but in fact, with non-Cuban Hispanics in Miami-Dade. So then if you saw a weighted exit poll that gave you some insight into why that's happening that matched with that county data that you're already seeing, okay, that would be interesting to me that you have a theory and the, the the weighted exit polls are just a piece of your evidence for your theory. That's fine. Um, you know, you want to go look at those counties that I was pointing to in Wisconsin in the sweep, all of them stuck with Trump, every single pivot county. Um, Again, take that data, look at who lives there, what their average income is per household, and then show me the exit polling that will back up a theory that you have that matches that county data where the exit polling is simply one piece of your evidence. That's all to say Um, just coming to me with exit polling, even if it's weighted and saying, see, look, there was no gender gap and women voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly. I need some other data that is, um, that is making you think that exit polling alone will convince me of nothing. And what I keep seeing are people saying, this is super surprising because it doesn't match anything we've seen, but the exit poll says that it's true. Right. That's exactly the stuff that you should set on fire and, and throw out the door. Right. And, you know, I guess what, what you're saying is to really know, you've got to do a lot more work. So, yes. So, yes. you know, if Things you have- Things that dem- people on Twitter don't seem interested in doing. So if you have demographic data on a precinct, for example, yes. and the precinct, uh, you have an actual count. So the demographic data on the precinct is going to be probably pretty darn accurate and then the count itself is pretty darn accurate, then you can start to make some arguments about that. Um, Like Kenosha, for instance, is really interesting in Wisconsin because that went for Trump by 316 votes in 2016. And this time around, um, you know, I I don't have it right in front of me, but he won it more comfortably. He increased his lead in Kenosha. So if you then showed me an exit poll that said that Trump's law and order message really resonated in places that had seen unrest, Well, that fits with what I'm seeing in Kenosha. 
On the other hand, if you uh, showed me some exit polling that said Donald Trump's law and order message did nothing in those places, then I would say, okay, what else could explain Kenosha? And then I would start looking at um, income traits. You know, uh, was this a particularly blue collar place? Well, no, not really. It's more suburban. You know, like you see what I'm saying? It's it's almost like Mm -hmm. a doctor trying to diagnose something like, well, you have a cough. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean you have pneumonia unless like I can find all this other stuff that backs up that you have pneumonia. A cough alone could be a lot of things. Well, you know, and it's interesting as of now, as of now, the, uh, uh, the exit polls indicate a slippage in evangelical vote, uh, for Trump. However, there's also, well, there's also evidence of slippage and even of support for Trump in southern suburbs of Georgia or in suburbs of Georgia around Atlanta, which is even an evangelical Mecca. And so you might say, huh, why would we be seeing significant slippage in these sort of southern suburban areas? And then, oh, there's slippage there. It look you see in the exit polling for evangel. So that then you would say, okay, is could that be it? Or it would raise a question for you. Yeah. And I'd want to see um, some of the gender gap numbers from 2016, 2018 to see whether it was just uh, suburban women, for instance. I'd want to see college educated versus non-college educated demographics. Like basically you're looking to see all the different explanations that it could be. And the exit polling can um, make you look at some things more and say like, ah, there's also this potentially this religion issue. How many of those households uh, identified that way? Yeah. Man, you're making my one of my future pieces a lot harder. Sorry. Gosh. Hot takes are more fun when they can just be hot out the oven. Yeah, man. I know. It's still worth doing, though. The work is Ooh. still worth doing. You want to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court? Yeah, and you know what? It's not going to be as much as I wanted to. Let me, let me, let me set the table for this. So... um. If you're a regular advisory opinions listener, you know that um, the words, if the word exit poll is a is a is a trigger um, for Sarah, uh, the the case name Employment Division versus Smith is a trigger for me. Um, this is the 1990 Scalia opinion that um, transformed First Amendment free exercise jurisprudence. It abandoned the test, because um, what if, what if we we talk if we're we're really shi- uh, we're really change- shifting gears? I have to get my legal mind going. Anyway, we talk a lot on AO advisory opinions about tests that the test that is applied, how often it actually um, uh, dictates the outcome of a case. So, for example, strict scrutiny. There's a compelling governmental interest justified by least restrictive means is called, it's called, you know, strict in theory, fatal in fact, because it's a tough test for a um, government measure to overcome when it conflicts with the constitutional right. And so previously, before 1990, the test that applied to free exercise claims was called the compelling, it was strict scrutiny, a compelling interest test. This was articulated in a case called Sherbert v. Verner. After Sherbert v. Verner uh, was law for a couple of decades, almost three, Scalia um, repudiated that test in Employment Division v. Smith. And he essentially said that if I bring a free exercise claim and I'm challenging a neutral law of general applicability, then I'm going to lose. 
I'm going to lose. So, and, and that was a case involving the use of peyote. Uh, so a person was fired for the use of peyote in a religious ceremony. And they said, it wasn't a recreational drug use. It was a religious drug use. I should have the right to use that. And the court said, no, uh, a law prohibiting all drug use is neutral, generally applicable. You lose. And this is something that kind of launched the religious liberty bar in this country um, in an interesting way, because it, it was sort of a wake-up call for a lot of people that in a part of the First Amendment was re had really been doctrinally devalued. Um, and it's sort of at the genesis of a lot of the religious liberty conflicts we've seen. And, and smart lawyers have figured out a lot of clever ways around Employment Division v. Smith, such as, what if I phrase my free exercise claim as a free speech claim? Yeah, and have one. But Employment Div Division v. Smith stands. So the court took a case, and it was argued yesterday, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, where they actually said they were going to consider whether or not to revisit Smith. That was one of the questions presented. And the facts of the case were pretty interesting. This was a Catholic social services that was being excluded from the Philadelphia foster uh, parenting program because it upholds Catholic teaching on sexual morality and, and would not refer kids to same-sex couples or unmarried cohabiting couples. And so they blocked their participation. Case goes up to Supreme Court. I'm anticipating it because there's a big religious liberty winning streak. They took the case to re-examine Smith. Uh, I thought they were going to re-examine Smith, and I start reading the oral argument, and right out of the gate, I think, they're not going to re-examine Smith. Um, they're going to decide this case under Smith. Why? Because the litigants said, hey, court, we don't think you have to revisit Smith. Um, am I missing something here, Sarah? Yeah. So the only thing I would note is that on the cert stage, when they, uh, when the folks representing the foster care Catholic Charities foster service made their case to the Supreme Court as to why they should take this case, they explicitly said, uh, "We're going to advocate that this is the case to overturn Smith." And so then the court granted cert. That took four votes, of course. And then at the merit stage, they just really backed off of it. Yeah. And I think that, um, A, the court does not like when you do that. It feels like a bait and switch. They took the case because you were going to make um, the best legal arguments on both sides as to the continued validity of this major piece of precedent. And then you didn't. You just really wanted them to take the case um, so I think that will hurt their credibility moving forward. It's one of these religious liberty um, groups. And I think that's a shame. Not quite sure why they did it. Uh, second, the court also seemed um, very annoyed in a very Chief Justice Roberts kind of way, although he was not the only justice annoyed by this, that basically Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, had put this in, put them in this position. They said that... Um, uh, you know, because this could happen, they took all these actions, even though no homosexual couple had been turned away, according to the Catholic services. Um, and so several justices were like, so, you know, you didn't have to do this. This was overly litigious. You wanted to 
make this big splashy thing. The problem is that because of the posture of the case, they can't kick this on ripeness or mootness because the Catholic services are the ones that are in the losing position. So if they kicked it, it would simply stand and Philadelphia would win, even though they're the ones who sort of ginned up the controversy in theory in the first place by refusing to renew the um, contract with them. So there's a few just like procedural things that clearly are not good for this case. And that generally means you're not going to get big law. You're going to get small law coming out of this. Yeah. So essentially, so the, the very opening of the case, um, the uh, the advocate for the Catholic, Catholic Social Services says the court below, the courts below made a simple error. They failed to understand where employment division versus Smith controls and where it doesn't. In other words, when there's a neutral law of general applicability and when there isn't. She said, Smith doesn't control when government uses a system of individualized exemptions or when it makes other exceptions that undermines its rules or when it changes the rules to prohibit a religious practice. Philadelphia made all three of those errors here. So in other words, in, in plain English, she's saying you, she begins the oral argument by saying you can rule for us without touching Smith. And here's an easy roadmap for doing it. Um, but the problem then, is it's not easy because this case has such messy, messy mm-hmm. facts. You know, when um, foster services used to be handled by private entities, then the state came in and uh, basically started to contract with individual entities. Well, now you have to contract to be a foster placement group. So does that mean you're a licensee or a contractor who's basically a quasi-employee of the state? Those are really different things under the law. Uh, You know, letting someone do something is one thing, and I think then um, the Catholic social services would win. But that's very different than, I think, the position that they're in, which is is as a contractor of the state. Basically, the the state is simply letting... um, someone else do this on the state's behalf. Uh, That's a big difference. Now, Amy Coney Barrett raised a great hypothetical at the end with uh, Philadelphia's lawyer in which she asks, let me tee it up here. Let's imagine that the state takes over all hospitals and says from now on, we are going to be responsible for hospitals, but we will contract with private entities to actually run them. And so there's a Catholic hospital that gets a contract with the city to run it. And uh, in fact, the Catholic hospital had been in existence before. And the contract with the state provides that you have to provide basically all medical procedures and there is no exception for abortion. And so they're saying this Catholic hospital has to provide abortion. The Catholic hospital existed beforehand. um, And then the state moves in to the field. Uh, That's a really good example, actually. And I think that is exactly the problem that the court is facing and exactly how they will decide this. Um, And it's teed up really nicely. Great first, uh, not first oral argument, but first major oral argument for the new justice. Um, But that, again, is not going to be getting to overturning Smith. David, that's going to get to this issue of a state moving into a private sector area and then taking it over and then having contracts. Yeah. And it's a, and it's also messy because it's a state moving into a private sector area. And we talked in the green, the Slack slash zoom green room before this, comparing this to like nationalizing an industry, but that's not even the proper analogy because it's a state moving into an area, but then leaving the independent, the private entity as a private entity, 
and saying you're you're to but to work in this area you have to contract with us. Um, whereas a nationalization process would be well, all hospitals are government hospitals now. No, and it's more another example that they use in the oral argument was private prisons. Could you um, running a private prison? say that you weren't going to take certain types of inmates or something like that. And like, well, no, obviously that the state could choose not to contract with a private prison operating system that wouldn't take the prisoners type thing. Um, So I think this is a much messier case than what the Supreme Court thought they were taking. I think they just thought they were going to take a nice little tee up on overturning Smith. Uh, I think this is going to get decided very narrowly on the facts And even if Catholic uh, social services happens to win this one, it won't be a real win. It will maybe be a very, very narrow, hey, go back. This one exception that Philadelphia has looks kind of shady to me um, when I was reading about it. Uh, It appears to apply, but then they say it doesn't apply. You know, I I think the Supreme Court might regret taking this one now. Well, I smell a Masterpiece Cake Shop style decision here. Um, Not, not specifically doctrinally masterpiece cake shop, but a case that presents a big issue that can be decided in a small way. And I could easily imagine one of these Kagan, Roberts, Kavanaugh sort of, um, and maybe even Amy Coney Barrett, because nothing about her questions indicated that she was chomping at the bit to overturn Smith. No, the only Um, two justices that I saw that were firmly on Catholic social services were Thomas and Alito. Yeah, that that was unequivocally clear. But you know, Amy Coney but Barrett, Gorsuch, played... Kavanaugh, Roberts, uh, and and Barrett, um, you know, sympathetic. I'll say that, but yeah. not overly so. I could see six three seven two on narrow grounds. So I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna make a, a tentative prediction. Okay. Six three seven two on narrow grounds, applying uh, the existing doctrine, uh, legal doctrine. Uh, well, 60 or 72 on narrow grounds with applying the existing legal doctrine in favor of Catholic social services, but a case that doesn't have a doesn't inform the larger issue very much. And then a couple of concurrences saying Smith needs to go. And that's that. Yeah, I think it's going to turn around these exceptions, uh, whether the exceptions are too broad so that they can't exclude Catholic social services. Um but the Catholic services are a contractor and that is different than a licensee issue. So, and, yeah. and the reason, and just to give, a, before we move on from this, just to give some broader context as to why this really matters is uh, if, for example, um, the Democrats were able to capture both the presidency and the Senate, which as we've said, is, is still apparently a live possibility. Um, if they were able to capture the presidency in the Senate, then there are there are um, legal initiatives in play that could potentially overturn, at least in some context, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was a law passed after Smith with wide bipartisan support that at least as applied to federal actions, reinstates strict scrutiny. And so, for example, the Equality Act, which is uh, designed to end employment discrimination against uh, and other forms of discrimination against LGBT Americans, specifically has a provision that would uh, that says the RIFRA would not apply to the Equality Act. That RIFRA does not govern the Equality Act, and 
However, if you get rid of Employment Division v. Smith and reinstate Sherbert v. Verner, then you have essentially RIFRA at the federal and that you have universally applicable RIFRA back. Uh, and so a huge amount of the religious liberty sort of alarms about federal statutes, et cetera, would be eased uh, if if Smith is overturned. But as I said, I as we both say, I don't I don't think that's happening. Indeed. Well, uh, don't forget, we won't have a podcast on Monday because of the what's next event dot com that you should check out our post-election event. David and I will be there. Jonah, Steve, David, who all are you interviewing? I am interviewing Russell Moore, uh, head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is uh, the sort of the religious liberty arm of the, the largest Protestant denomination in America. Uh, Russell Moore, Dr. Moore is a good friend of mine, great guy, and really has his pulse on uh, evangelical America. So we're going to talk about what's next for uh, evangelical America after 2020. Okay, if you reference the exit polls, though, I will throw something at the virtual stage. I might do it just (laughs) so i'm the virtual mc of this whole thing so i can just like shut off your zoom you know like just close you out i'm also interviewing tim scott uh having a good conversation with tim scott and yeah really looking forward to that and we're gonna we're gonna get pretty wide ranging um and hopefully we'll have a presidential result by that time (laughs) uh so we'll we can talk about that we can talk there is exit poll data indicating that <laughs> Trump may have improved his standing with um, non-white voters. Uh, we may talk about that. We'll also talk about his police reform efforts. So a lot going on. Sarah, what, what are you what are you running aside from the whole thing? I'm talking to some of my Democratic operative friends, see what we learned about running political races. What worked, what didn't in a pandemic? Does that mean ground games are dead now if Biden won? Or does it actually mean that's why Trump was able to have such an impressive showing? Uh, So we'll go through all of that. And I'll also be talking to some Republican governors about what this means for the states. Of course, during the Obama years, it was the states that really led the charge, the Republican-run states, uh, that led a bunch of litigation. So our AO listeners in particular should be jazzed up for that one because uh, I am. And there's just a lot of other... Liz Cheney's going to be there. Um, Ben Sass. I mean, there's a a good good lineup, David. I'm excited. Yeah, it's a a great lineup. Uh, Really looking forward to it. So what's next event.com. We've already got a lot of people signing up, which is fantastic. Um, and look, uh, if you don't, if you want to take your eyes off Twitter, you know, it's a great place to put your eyes on the what's next virtual, <laughs> uh, on our, on what's next.com. That's a great place to put your eyes. Um, uh, I was really that, was waiting be- to see where that sentence was going, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm feeling scorned. My my idea of like buying all the TV time and then saying I bought all this time so you don't have to watch any more commercials is like been mocked. You know the eye rolls, and then my pitch for what's next. Goodness. Yeah, my ability to regulate my facial expressions is tied a hundred percent to the amount of sleep that I've gotten. So David is getting like all my real facial expressions that I normally try to keep more contained. So 
I don't want to explore that uh, too much because that's that's saying that the I've been spared the eye rolls that you actually feel. <laughs> I've learned. I mean, every woman out there knows the resting bitchy face stuff. So, you know, I try to try to make sure that I am putting forward a facial expression that actually shows the admiration and respect that I have for others. Um, even when ah. I question some of their opinions. <laughs> nice, nice recovery, nice recovery. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll just let that very short analysis of facial expression stand in for a robust cultural discussion, which we will have next podcast. Um, along with hopefully a lot more of real data yep. to talk about and real results. So thanks as always for listening. You've been great about rating us on Apple uh, Podcasts. Uh, please go do that if you haven't done it. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done it yet. And last admonition, don't read exit polls and don't read much Twitter. Okay, hilariously, my husband just texted me a thing from Twitter that is incorrect about the vote counting. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's breaking out all over. It is breaking Everywhere. out all over. It's in my own house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. And we will be back on Thursday. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.